This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent St. John in Berlin. In every society, no matter how developed, there are structures that systematically favor certain groups of people over others, like apartheid in South Africa, the enslavement of black people in the U.S., residential schools for indigenous people in Canada, lack of voting rights for women, just to name a few examples from throughout history. Learning about how these issues have historically affected and how they continue to affect marginalized groups of people is an essential step in becoming an effective ally. And if we want to learn to do something, we should learn to do it well, because even the most well-intentioned input can sometimes be counterproductive or even harmful. Today's program features three DEI practitioners. That's diversity, equity, and inclusion. Here now, our correspondent, Senjan. We'll start with New Visions collaborators Anish Kabua and Amaka Ohia Nowak, and how they each found their way to working as DEI practitioners. Amaka is a critical linguist and a diversity consultant and anti-discrimination trainer. She conducted her doctoral research at the Department of African American Studies at the University of California at Berkeley and completed her PhD at the University of Wrocław in Poland. I was born in Poland. I'm a daughter of a Polish mother and a Nigerian father who met at medical university in Poland, where my dad was pursuing his studies. And growing up in a predominantly white society, for me, was one of the premises of doing the work that I'm doing right now, actually. So it was an experience of being, on the one hand, somebody who is exoticized, who is an attraction, who is being looked at because people like me still are not common in Polish society. And at the same time, it was an experience of me wanting not to be who I am, not wanting to look uh, what I look like and feeling who I am or who I am not, where I belong to, also occurred when I lived in Nigeria for a few years as a child, Mm -hmm. where I was not perceived as somebody who is belonging because I was more light skin. And when we came back to Poland, I realized that I don't think I could belong anywhere and not really realizing how internalized many of the systemic structures and those things that I experienced like microaggressions or verbal abuse from children coming from lack of experiences with people of color at all, how internalized these racist behaviors were in me. It was only when I went into my PhD program that I was encouraged to actually look deeper into both my experiences, but at the same time, these discourses that shaped my experiences and shaped my identity, meaning racist discourses being developed in Polish, in media, in public discourses, in academic discourses, in everyday conversations and so on. And then over the course of these 10 years, we also met with Agnieszka Bua. And we also started working together on critical whiteness, anti-racism, and decolonization of the present and the future and the past as well. Agnieszka Kabua is a creative facilitator and consultant with a broad history of working in culture, arts, and education, with a focus on holistic anti-discrimination and critical global education. Her background is in cultural studies, photography and media, and audiovisual communication. Agnieszka Kabua who goes by Bua, 
co-founded New Visions in 2018 to strive for positive systemic change in communities and society at large on an everyday basis. I was born in a little town in the southern western Poland, close to the border with Czech Republic. I think that my first deep reflection related to where I am sitting in the complex social structures of the world was going for an internship to Kenya. And as an Eastern European person, realizing the colonial dreams of my European ancestors and entering the space as a white Eastern European with a photo camera, being paid by a German government and funding, like structural fundings that make it possible for me to, to move there was, was the first understanding of how am I entangled in this very system? And how am I benefiting from white supremacist structures without fully understanding it back then yet? It was the moment for me a lot to untangle the structures of oppression that live inside of me and this deep reflection of how I do reproduce that and how I do participate in that and how I'm becoming what I'm supposed to become by the system. So the good white person going places. Boy, you were mentioning one of the things that you've written about is how normativity contributes to human tragedy. How does normativity marginalize people and how does it create damage in society? It comes to me the question from one of the festivals that we organized, is your comfort zone really comfortable and is the norm really comfortable? And what comes to me is also the title of Janet Winterson's book, Why Be Happy If You Can Be Normal. It's what she heard from her mom when she came out as a lesbian. Yeah, and I'm thinking about how the system we function in is based on oppression and exploitation, oftentimes also self-exploitation. And oftentimes, as you were talking about how we internalize systems of oppression, how I internalize sexism, how I internalize homophobia, how it impacts my life and my capacity to thrive in this world and to be free, to really be free and feel free. By trying to fit into this norm, we cut ourselves like really cut ourselves. And it's extremely visible right now thinking about queer youth in Poland and the amount of self-harm, suicidal thoughts and actually real suicides happening in the country because of queer youth not feeling safe because the norm that is there right now is not protecting their lives, not taking care of them. It's not letting them live, literally. And this human tragedy is then impacting also other people in the communities. That's one of the most visible topics right now in, in the country I come from. And there are many others related to the treatment of folks on the move, to the safety of Black people not leaving home on Independence Day because of fearing their lives. It's a philosophical question, actually. The first thing that comes to my head is the idea of white race, which tells a story about how the U.S. society was shaped by this idea of race and how the country was constructed of the idea of race to justify colonization, to argue that the murder and the massacre of native people of America's lands was okay. And these are, I think, moments where the ideas of norm are constructed when the society wants to justify some systemic oppression. And now fast forward to the Polish context right now, where you mentioned the 
Independence Day in Poland, which is, as you said, the day that should be celebrated by everyone in the society. But for instance, myself as a black woman, I cannot go out on the street. And this is the experience that I share with every single black person I speak to here in this country, whether it's an interview for my research or just a casual conversation. It's like the communal agreement that on this day we don't go out because we fear that we won't be safe because the nationalist and the neo-fascist march is being accepted by the government. It's actually the government encourages people to join the demonstrations and so on. So I agree with you that what is a norm is constructed by the power structures, but What I wanted to say before is also the consequences of this normativity, where you mentioned psychological consequences for queer communities, but also for other communities who are marginalized. For instance, the isolation that we as people of African descent or African diaspora in Eastern European countries, we are very much isolated because of the demographics. We are a tiny population here and we don't fit into the norm what it means to be a Polish person, which is also illustrated by the Polish census. You can only tackle yourself as a Pole, meaning that you're a white person. So whiteness means Polishness and the fact that people like me will not be perceived as a Polish person and all the microaggressions that many of people of color experience in the whole world. Like, where are you really from? Or you speak your first language so well and so on. This is like a daily experience of ours. So you don't want to interact on a daily basis because you just don't want to feel this little tiny stinges of mosquito bites every day. And you isolate also because you don't have people that look like you around you. So I think there are many sources of where this normativity comes and it's not just linear. So one kind of shapes another. So the normativity comes from institutions of power, but at the same time, it's actually reproduced and redistributed by members of society and then it's actually legitimized by the institutions of power. I really want to give some space to the weight of what you say about Independence Day, that it's simply accepted by the community that people of color don't go out on the streets because you are expecting it to be unsafe and how this is something that the government condones and even encourages and what that must do to an individual like our bodies. Tanahisi Coates talks about how racism affects the body, that it's not a concept, it affects our physical body, that it shatters teeth and breaks bones, and what that is to live in that system day after day, because Independence Day happens once a year. It's one manifestation, but what you exist in society every day of your life. I'm interested now to talk about what is allyship in these situations. Which touched upon now, this understanding how norm makes the world unsafe for so many people and how this feeling of safe in the world that you move through is our shared responsibility. And I'm thinking also how to create coalitions and being this all together to find that each one of us is at the same time marginalized and privileged. So what's important for me when it comes to allyship is first doing my homework, learning, reading, listening, trusting, understanding, you know, without self-defenses or protecting my ego, but really listening. So I think that the first skill is really listening and letting it sink into you, however uncomfortable it may be. And this is the hardest thing to allow it to really reach you and to reckon with the reality of things. 
my experience has been also with myself is that this is where a lot of people stop mm. because it is so uncomfortable because we don't want to see our own responsibility in these things. When I listen to you, I'm thinking about how the system, we can call it colonial modernity, we can call it capitalism, we can call it many things, but how it's numbing us a lot and this capacity of feeling and sensing is being reduced. And part of this process is just courageously feeling and sensing, feeling pain, feeling discomfort, feeling difficulty that is part of our human experience. And I can talk about our experience as facilitators is let people know that they will feel that way, that they will feel shame, they will feel guilt, and it will be uncomfortable and they are safe and they are not in danger. That feeling shame and feeling guilt is part of the process. You cannot escape that. If you don't move through that, if people don't feel uncomfortable at our workshops, it means that we did something wrong. <laughs> this pain is part of the process. And what helps also is creating safe atmosphere to feel that and hold each other. And don't feel ashamed that we feel guilty and don't feel ashamed that we feel shame, but really create the space to compose the shit together. To be like, okay, I feel shit and you'll feel shit and we'll feel shit together. But this is to nourish our collective liberation further on. Allyship is a very intersectional work. First of all, recognizing that your identity, if you want to be an ally, is intersectional and that your identity will lead to being exposed to privileges, like unearned privileges. Like in my case, being a Black person and a Black woman living in Poland may make me a member of a marginalized community, but at the same time, having earned a PhD, being educated in Poland, speaking Polish fluently, being of Polish citizenship, having a Polish passport gives me a lot of privileges. Being a cisgender person of color, being a, a non-queer person of color also gives me in this country and in this system a lot of privileges that I can use to be an ally as well. I would like to link it back to what we were talking about before, about this pain and discomfort that are also sensually experienced. Mm -hmm. So this invitation to recognize where do you feel resistance in your body? What happens when you feel guilt or shame? How do you experience it? Decolonization and empowerment start in the body. And that's the place where our also spirit lives, where our emotions live. And to have this attentiveness to recognize these things, this mindfulness to know and understand what is happening inside of me and how I can work through this. I'm curious how you present this work to places or to people who may not understand why that's so important to go through. How do we bring people into this conversation when they're very comfortable where they are? Because of the emotional burden that this work carries with it, being a facilitator who's a member of marginalized community, I choose to also select ways in which I work. And I think we are agreeing on this with Bua, that we don't use tools like a recipe. You know, we don't work with a certain scenario for every group that we talk to. So before every training, we have a conversation about the needs, like always before the trainings, right? Needs assessment, listening sessions. So we actually want to find out what are the difficulties, challenges, but also where are the places in which and obstacles and places in which people could resist and why are people resistant? So we want to understand that. And given that, we are also trying to design and shape the training process in a way that's 
will both answer those needs, but at the same time, we are not the ones that will support the lip service business in terms of DA trainings that make people feel nice and so on. So it's a part of a risk. We have experiences of groups that most of the people were not satisfied because they were not ready for this kind of work. And that's okay too, because nobody is ready for this kind of work, because our education system is not ready for it. At least in this country or in this part of the world, we don't have emotional education at schools. We are not ready to empathize with others on many levels. We are not actually prepared for this kind of work. So sometimes it means just starting from basic concepts of what discrimination is, what inclusion is, what equity is. And for some people, this cognitive work is really needed before they can enter the work of deeper processes and so on. So meeting people at the stage in which they're able to engage in these concepts, even if that might be simply on an abstract level at the moment. Yes. I love what you said about this meeting people where they are, because it also needs understanding where they are. I think that throughout years, I can say for myself that I also have a certain clarity of who I can work with and who I'm not interested in working with. I don't have an interest in convincing people. So getting into the active opposition space, that's not the space where I want to contribute to. I would rather work with the passive allies to activate some understanding and energy so we can work together. And also the longer I do this work, the more I understand that it's actually looking for a community to work with. And in our past collaborations with Amakai, this understanding is landing deeper and deeper. That's our collective work. We do it together, create spaces to find a way to keep working together. I really appreciate this. How do we keep working together? Because it's the longevity of relationships that allow us to keep on doing this work. That when we create this active opposition, we potentially create people who will then oppose our own opposition and then we feed the polarization. And that's what you also elevated here, how to do this work relational and not transactional. So we are not getting somewhere and spend three hours and then say goodbye and how to actually at the core of this work, think about the relationships that we create between each other and within the group. Another thing that is really important is to actually address it as creating spaces and learn to have difficult conversation in a compassionate way. We learn that together because we shy away from things. After a short break, we'll rejoin correspondent Senjan and her two guest panel as they explore how to be a better ally for peace and justice. Stay tuned to Peace Talks Radio.
This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio program and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online at peacetalksradio.com, where you can listen to all the programs in our series dating back to 2002, read more about our guests, share transcripts, read other articles we've linked to on each subject. Today, it's how to be a better ally to oppressed individuals toward our collective goal of more peace and justice. I'm Paul Ingalls with correspondent Sen John, who reintroduces us and continues with her guests. New Visions collaborators Agnes Gabua and Amaka Ohia Nowak. I would love to turn our conversation now to Amaka, what you were speaking about before, the role of language and the effect of words in this work. Words are very powerful. It's not a new statement, but I learn it every day and I encourage others to also see it with whom I work, being a linguist as well. Because it's creating our reality. So one of the examples that would refer to your first question about normativity is the way in which that language choices of politicians, of media producers, media practitioners shape and influence the experience of refugees of color in Poland. So, for instance, there would be those very universal and general, I would say, anti-migrant rhetorical statements like a flood of migrants or invasion of migrants. So the metaphors that refer either to some natural catastrophes or to the war, which are widely used by the media in Poland, especially right-wing media, which are in power now, but also by just people who will not identify as right-wing supporters. Like saying that migrants are floods means that they are not really humans, that they are going to bring some danger, that they are bringing some kind of threat. It's simply the way in which language is not just being the words, it's just the tip of the iceberg, but underneath the words there are many attitudes, prejudices, presumptions, but also it generates some emotions, especially in Polish discourse, the other who is a person of color, who is a queer person. The other is actually constructed by language and by the political discourse very much so. LGBTQI community being called disease, being called ideology, dehumanized. So when we look at discriminatory language, this can dehumanize people or dehumanizes people. And this activation of the fear, whenever there's a talk about floods or invasions, it automatically comes with us. We have to do something. We have to defend ourselves. We need to protect ourselves because this is making us unsafe. Using this kind of language or using the expressions such as rainbow disease, as queer community was called by people in power, creates a climate that it's okay to speak that way. Mm -hmm. Because these people don't face any consequences of using this kind of language. And there was actually a research two years ago that proved that using this kind of discriminatory language and hate speech by people in power creates an atmosphere for violence to happen. In 2019, already there was a big part of the country stating LGBT-free zones that, of course, provoked a big resistance from queer community. But I'm thinking about how by those in power that creates the norms, normalizing certain kind of language impacts real lives of people living in the country. I was actually looking into the stages of genocide, and it begins with the way that we use language. It begins with creating this notion that the other is less human than we are. And it might not seem like such a direct connection now that, you know, we say something like 
LGBT free zones, which in some contexts might be like, oh yeah, that makes sense to me because we have other kinds of smoking free zones. But it makes this comparison, you map it out in your mind so that it connects to something that you can justify in yourself. Mm. And being in Germany, we know that that has happened in the recent past here and it begins in these mm. small ways. I want to say something else on the topic of language. As a facilitator, when we are offering trainings, very often when there is a topic of racism, they will actually ask, so how can I call people like you? And it's okay and it's not offensive. And they understand that when they choose a word that is correct, then they won't be racist. So on the one hand, there is lack of understanding how language can be powerful. And on the other hand, there is also lack of understanding that language is not everything and changing my language behaviors is not enough. I have to dig deeper in terms of my attitudes, prejudices, everything that we have spoken about in order to actually go through some kind of transformation if I decide to do so. And many people just stay on this very surface levels of language. And when we connect this, for instance, with very subtle forms of reproducing systemic races, which I mentioned already, which are microaggressions. So questions like, where are you really from? Or expressions like, oh, you look so exotic, you are so beautiful. Or where does your name come from? Which on an intentional level are not harmful for the person that is sending this kind of message, right? But on a receiver's level, if experienced on a daily basis, and this is what over 90% of the Black community in Poland experience, this is based on the most recent report that I was also part of researcher interviewing members of the African diaspora, that those are these microaggressions. So subtle verbal abuses that exclude actually, that make you feel that you're not from here, that remind you on a daily basis that you don't belong then it becomes more kind of nuanced work with the language. It's not just removing certain words or expressions or metaphors and bringing some better one or more correct ones instead. Yeah, I resonate so much with what you just said. If we dig a little bit deeper, it's like, where do the questions even come from? Assuming that I have a right even to ask you assumes that I am in the seat of normality and you are not. And that's really the big shift that is more difficult to make. Seeing as many of our listeners are based in the United States and having tracked some of the trends that have happened in the United States with the revocation of abortion rights in some places, and just kind of noticing you know, things that have also wider impact because of how much influence a power like the United States has, how do you see things that have happened recently in the United States as influencing current stances in Poland and in Europe on topics of marginalization of people of color, of LGBTQ status. So I can definitely speak to Black Lives Matter movement. I recognized in Europe by many in Poland, not understanding that Black Lives Matter existed before, but in 2020, after the murder of George Floyd, many people realized that this actually is a topic also in Europe. Black Lives Matter, the statement became more heard in this part of the world, in Eastern Europe and in Poland specifically. This was a moment of awakening for the Black community to activate themselves. This was a moment where some kind of empowerment came in from what was happening in the States. And also 
the moment of recognition of our experiences, of our pain, of our suffering by many in this country, by many allies, by feminist movements, by LGBTQI movements, so across the marginalized communities. So the notion of this allyship finally also referred to us as those who are Black, that were unseen by social movements here before. It was also a moment of creating Black is Polish movement, stop calling me Muzen, don't call me M-word movements, and so on, which were also created by Black women in Poland. And also it was a moment that gave a birth of creating Alliance for Black Justice in Poland. So I would say that this Black activism was very much influenced by what had been happening and has been happening in the U.S. in the past few years. Yeah, this question is multi-layered because it can impact on liberation side and creating like support structure, but also impact on the other side on actually discriminating narratives. And I would also like to more focus more on how we can support each other and how our movements can inspire each other. Building on what Amaka was saying on how our work in Alliance for Black Justice in Poland is also strongly supported by folks from the U.S. I appreciate really that it's not only one larger global power influencing a country that's smaller. There are movements in both of these places and many other places, and we can really support each other through. It doesn't really matter where you're based. And leadership can come from anywhere, and it should come from anywhere. Maka and Anashkebua, thank you so much for your time, for your heart. Thank you. Thank you, you both. It was very inspiring. Thank you. I'm also honored to share this virtual circle with you. You're listening to Anashkebua and Amaka Ohia Nowak, diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioners with Correspondent Senjan on how to support growing networks of allyship at any stage of their development. To listen to the full interviews with both and links to their work with New Visions, go to peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com and look for the March 2023 episode. Up in just a moment, a behavioral change coach and poet. Stay tuned for more on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio. I'm Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent St. John in Berlin. Our program today is delving into what it means to be a good ally. We're next going to hear from a diversity consultant with a unique perspective. When he's not coaching organizations through behavioral change, he's on stage, leveraging the power of poetry to carry his message. Kevin Hohen is a DEI practitioner by day and spoken word artist by night. What makes Kevin's perspective on the topic of allyship even more unique is that he is an adoptee, born in Korea and raised in the Netherlands in a Dutch family. 
his multi-layered experience of life informs and infuses both his DEI work and his poetry with passion and precision. Kevin speaks about the importance of taking an inside-out perspective when it comes to acknowledging our own privilege. Listen on to find out what this means. The topics that I choose to write about, racism, white supremacy, rape culture, domestic violence, depression, suicide, all the stuff that, all the stuff that society loves to talk about. And I think there's something about art that, not always, but I've noticed that if I, in my friend's group, if I want to talk about white supremacy, and, and a lot of my friends are white, there's an immediate, what do you mean? Do you want to mm. talk about white supremacy? Yeah. Are you, I, what, like, what are you saying really? There's yeah. an immediate defensiveness. Yeah. And art has the possibility sometimes to address white supremacy, for example, in a room full of white people and trigger less defensiveness. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have direct conversations, but I believe art can add to the conversation in ways that sometimes personal conversation can't. Mm. In the earlier years, and it's not even that long, it's five years, I think the way I wrote about feminism, for example, was more from an outside-in perspective. But the problem, if I as a man write about feminism from an outside-in perspective, is that I'm saying, like, I'm not part of the problem because I'm looking at it, not from within. I'm just commenting on it as yeah. an observer. But I am not an observer. I am the problem. I am the problem when it comes to gender inequality. As a man, I am at the heart of the problem, the common denominator around the world of gender inequality, not advancing at the pace that we want it, is men, not women. And so if I write about feminism, if I write about rape culture, if I write about toxic masculinity, I can't do that from an outside-in perspective. I have to do that from an inside-out perspective, where I center myself in a way where I explore my own responsibility and my own relationship to these topics rather than from an outside-in. Once I started understanding this, that has fundamentally changed my understanding about how to write from a place of privilege. So if I want to write about refugees, I can't do that talking about them. I have to do it from an inside out. So what is my culpability? What is my responsibility? What is my complicity in the problem of the refugee crises? When I speak about racism, I can do it in whatever way I want as a person of color because I'm, I'm the oppressed. But in any other situation where I am the oppressor, essentially where I have privilege, I have to learn to write from an inside out perspective. And I think that is probably the most fundamental thing that has changed in, in the way that I approach spoken word these days. And I think as I started understanding how to write from a place of privilege in a more constructive way, in a more responsible way, I did start expanding the topics that I wrote about. In the earlier days, if I would write about feminism, it was more about generally about feminism. Now I realize I have to start picking topics. I have to, for example, write about rape culture and my role in rape culture. So if I go on stage and say sexism is bad, that statement is true. But what does that fundamentally change in the mindset of the people? Because if every person in the room is a liberal, progressive, open-minded individual, every person would agree with that statement. So it, it doesn't change anything. Everyone is like, will nod their heads, yes. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. One, women have been saying that forever. So I'm basically just reiterating what women have been saying. If I'm doing that, then rather than me saying it, give space to women. Two, it doesn't change the narrative in the audience, specifically men in the audience, of what everyday sexism looks like. And that statement doesn't change it. So that's an outside-in perspective. I'm talking about the problem, but I'm not addressing unconscious biases. I'm not addressing my own privilege. I'm not addressing power dynamics. I'm not changing and rewriting the narrative that people have about what it looks like 
And so if I go on stage and say, here's what I've learned about toxic masculinity. I've never seen my dad cry. And as a result, I grew up thinking that crying is a bad thing. Now I am doing an inside out perspective. Mm, you're saying, talking like, about your own experience yeah. to it. And you don't always have to talk about your own experience, but, but it's, it's a good starting point for an inside out perspective. And now by saying that I've never seen my dad cry, and as a result, I grew up believing that crying is a bad thing. Now I'm allowing men in the room to take a moment to reflect on their own history with their own dad. How often have I seen my dad cry? What does it actually mean? How often have I seen my mom cry? What's my relationship to crying myself? What do I think of when I see someone crying? What do I feel when I am crying myself? And that could start changing the narrative about one specific element of toxic masculinity, which is that men bottle up their emotions. Uh, and that's a generalization, but the generalization tends to be true. So there's the outside in is like, you paint a picture, you talk about the thing that's happening in society, almost like you were writing yeah. an essay about it, like an observational third person yeah. essay. Yeah. The inside out perspective is an invitation to consider how it affects you. What it means for you yeah. and therefore what it means for other people in the room. And the inside out perspective also takes the perspective of I am part of the system. Therefore, I am always part of the problem in case I am the one with privilege. So doing nothing would uphold the current system. So what does doing nothing look like? And what does doing something looks like? Most people in the audience would say, I'm not a racist, I'm not a sexist, I'm not a trans hater. But they don't necessarily realize that they're upholding a system that perpetuates trans hate, that perpetuates racism, that perpetuates sexism and other forms of oppression. And so if you can then change the narrative of what allyship looks like, change the narrative of what mistakes look like, change the narrative of what action looks like, change the narrative of what responsibility looks like, that gives the audience an opportunity to reflect on themselves and their own relationship to each of those different topics. And that is what fundamentally an inside-out perspective does. It acknowledges you are part of the system, therefore always part of the problem or part of the solution. It acknowledges that there is responsibility. It acknowledges that our always oppressed and oppressors. And it acknowledges that silence and doing nothing always will favor the oppressors. And when you go into the details, that gives people an opportunity to say, oh, I do that too. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm asking these questions to people of color, never realizing that those questions are actually oppressive. I never understood actually that making a joke about women is part of rape culture. Does that make me a rapist? No. Does that make you a bad person? Not necessarily. But now you know, and if you continue, yeah, that would make you a mm. sexist. That would make you a racist. And I can really imagine that is a challenging thing to consider for some people. If it's the first time that they're encountering this and there's someone on stage saying, this is what toxic masculinity looks like, and they suddenly recognize themselves and the things that you're describing, even though you're describing them about yourself, that they could feel in that moment attacked. Yes. And I'm not condoning it, but can understand the reaction to that. And that's been a question that I've been navigating a lot is how to invite people into the conversation, knowing that they're going to feel challenged, knowing that especially people who have an unconscious, they're not aware of their privilege, sometimes ignorance is their bliss. Becoming more aware creates more of a burden for them. How do we get people to basically take more burden than yeah. they? So my day job is in the field of behavioral change. And I get hired by organizations to come in and usually work for anywhere between three to 12 months or longer with people in the organizations to help change their behaviors. 
And for me, especially the inclusion part is all about behavioral change. Mm -hmm. You can't become more inclusive without changing your behavior. If currently the work environment is not inclusive, it's because of specific behaviors that are making Mm. it non-inclusive. I want to pause there because I want to think more about inclusion means changing your own behavior. Because, you know, when I was growing up and I was thinking, okay, including is just like inviting everybody to the party. It's like, come, 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 you know, as long as you're here with me, I've included you. How is that different from changing your behavior? What's missing there? Because I don't address my unconscious biases. If I don't uh, look at my own behavior and the impact of my behavior, I might be inviting more diversity into the room, but my behavior and my language might still be oppressive. So just inviting more diversity into the room might actually mean to invite more marginalized people into an unsafe space, into a hostile space, actually more specifically, into an oppressive space. And then very likely you'll also get a very high dropout rate. And there is no point in inviting more diversity into the room when we're talking about, for example, marginalized groups of people if the behavior of the people in the room doesn't fundamentally change. It's like, you know, I have a party. I only serve meat at this party and invite all my friends. And some of my friends are vegetarians. I'm like, I'm inviting you to the party. How come you don't feel comfortable here? You know, all of a sudden, oh, okay, now I understand. So what kind of behavioral change is needed to truly be inclusive? So I have a client that I've been working with for many years, and um, they proudly say that they're taking a lot of action to stimulate binary gender equality. So we're talking about men and women right, specifically. Okay, yeah. And they're having lots of initiatives to stimulate and promote women in leadership, for example. And there is nothing fundamentally wrong with that. Here's the problem. They have not, for the last couple of years, when they've started doing like blog posts about women in leadership, fireside chats with female leaders and role models, etc., support groups for women by women, right? all these kind of initiatives they've been doing for the past couple of years, not a single initiative has been targeting men and educating men about male mm. biases, mm. male gaze, toxic masculinity, unconscious biases, the role of men in advancing gender equality. Recently, I had a female leader that I was coaching come to me and say, I got feedback from both my male boss and some male colleagues that I have to be more assertive so that people listen to my ideas. Mm And I said, okay, well, hold on. Like, before we get into that, tell me actually more about your work environment. And she's like, I'm the only woman. So you have to be more like a man. Yeah. And so she explained to me more about a work situation and, and what that feedback meant. And we got to the conclusion that the problem isn't that she has to be more assertive so that she's listened to. The problem is that men aren't actually listening to her. So it's not that she has to be more assertive. Men have to realize that they're not giving women the same generosity, the same patience, the same respect, the same empathy as they give other men. And so if she gets interrupted all the time, which is one of those situations, but male colleagues don't get interrupted, then the problem isn't her assertiveness. The problem is the men in the room. I really understand the difference now. Thank you. The question for me is people who occupy privilege, unless they really truly believe in changing their behavior to make it better for other people, what would be their incentive to say, okay, I guess I'm the problem. It's so much easier to be unaware. It's so much easier to say it's someone else's problem. Why should they start to look at their own role in that? I believe there's two fundamental answers to it. One, there's simply a moral obligation. And let me say this, every organization 
has a moral obligation, in my opinion, to do everything in their power to contribute to an inclusive workspace. And regardless whether it pays off, regardless whether you can monetize it, like if a company only wants to do diversity, equity, inclusion to improve their financial situation. Why would that improve their financial situation? Because you basically allow every person's talents to flourish. So at the moment, if your workplace is not inclusive, one, you're not getting the best talent expressed. You're not getting people to be at their best. You get some people to be at the best. Mm -hmm. Two, you're li likely to be more sensitive to the needs also of the market. Artificial intelligence has already shown to be biased because it's fed by mm -hmm. people. So if your artificial intelligence is biased towards white, heterosexual, cis men, you're missing out on a huge market, essentially, because your data will only be biased towards that particular group and leave out a vast audience, essentially. And so those are reasons why it could be profitable to invest in diversity and inclusion. The second reason why I believe it is important that people take responsibility is because the relationships that you can form with other people, especially people from marginalized groups, will become so much richer, so much more intense, so much more connecting, so much more powerful, so much more meaningful once you start realizing that you are disconnecting from them because of your unconscious bias, because of your unaware oppressive behaviors. The moment my relationships with women can be so much more meaningful when I start realizing that my behaviors are biased, oppressive, and disconnecting. Because disconnecting mm -hmm. automatically means not connecting. You yourself suffer from your own unaware bias. Yeah, yeah. because my, my relationships cannot be as meaningful and intense as they could be. And so your life will become more richer if you maintain better relationships with people from marginalized groups. It's really interesting to hear you talk about this because the mental block that I have had up until now on behalf of other people, which is another thing, but on behalf of people who have privilege is, oh, you know, it's hard for you. I get it, which is also a bit patronizing and condescending from my part, right? I'm like, I, I know, look, you're standing on a pedestal. Why would you want to step off the pedestal? But what I've not considered is when you do have that privilege, yeah, you're disconnected from people who don't have that yes. privilege and you cannot connect yeah. with the people who you might want to connect with. And yeah. it's lonely. You know? it, it is lonely. And let me just jump on that loneliness. So I, I said that as a man, I can develop healthier, richer relationships with women if I address my male biases and unconscious biases, oppressive behaviors towards women. But just imagine how much richer and healthier my relationship can be towards other men if we collectively as men start addressing toxic masculinity and healing. Like, how many men can genuinely say that they've said to another man, not romantically, but just to another male friend, I love you? When was the last time you either texted or verbally said to another man, not romantically, I love you? The fact that we don't dare to say that to other men is A, homophobic, and B, is oppressive, sad, leads to loneliness. And so if I can say to another man, I love you, genuinely, my relationship to that other man can be so much healthier, so much richer. So it's not just me having healthier relationships to women, but it's also me having healthier relationships to men and having healthier relationships to non-binary people. And so our lives will be healthier, richer, more intense, if we start realizing that we have unconscious biases, if we start deconstructing them, if we start realizing that we have privileges and again, start using those privileges in, in active and better ways. Thank you very much for that. How would you respond to people who 
when they hear stories of your hardships, they say, you know, everybody's got hardships. Some people have hardships with racism. Some people have hardships with political status. Some people have hardships yeah. with abuse. Everyone's got hardships equating that no one's got it easy, basically. Yeah. So let's listen to those experiences. Let's acknowledge the hardships. Let's not compete because trauma works different for people. You can't say this is traumatic and that isn't. There is no universal scale for pain. So if I say that racism hurts me on a scale of 1 to 10 as 10, no one has the right to say, no, it's a 6. There is no universal scale for pain. Pain is subjective. Something can cause tremendous pain for one person and not for another. So we have to learn to listen to pain, to listen to people's experiences, and even racism. So two Asian people can experience racism, but both deal with it in entirely different ways. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Let's listen to those experiences. Let, let's learn from those experiences. And let's practice our empathy. Let's practice our capacity for empathy in those moments and not compare it, not say that you can't or you should or you haven't. Let's understand pain. Let's understand trauma and let's learn to have the capacity to develop relationships with people who have gone through very different experiences than ourselves. And I can only do that with other people if I'm willing to explore my own biases, my own privileges, my own ignorance. Because if I, for example, would sit with somebody who's been raped, regardless of gender, though, let's be real, the majority of people who get raped are women. If I sit down, and I have not been raped, and if I sit down with somebody who's been raped, I have to learn to hold space for that person. And my ability to hold space for that person will determine the strength of our relationship. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that my ability to hold space for that person, to listen to their pain, to understand them, to see them as a human being who went through hardship, to not define them the way I want, but to listen to where they're at right now, and no matter where they are right now and how they define that themselves, for me to still see their full humanity in them, my ability to do that depends on my ability to explore my relationship with discomfort, my relationship with all the things that I don't yet know, don't yet understand, which is often uncertainty, discomfort, chaos, lots of unknown. And my ability to, to sit with that will determine very much the, the quality of the relationship I can build with the other person. And I think, I believe it's so important that we start developing that capacity to hold space and to sit with other people and sit with their humanity. And humanity means their entire experience. And if I don't want to listen to part of their experience, then I'm denying their humanity. I love what you said that the quality of your relationship depends on the ability to hold space for each other because that depends, that will determine how intimate you can be with each other, yeah. how much you can trust each other, how much you see each other for who you really are and who you want the other person to be. Exactly. And the fact that maybe this person has been raped, but I can't deal with that, so I'll just deal with everything else, but not this part, means that that part of that person needs to be left out of our yeah. relationship. And yet, I, I feel like there are going to be moments, and I've certainly experienced them, where I'm with someone and I'm like, wow, I cannot handle the intensity of what your life experience has been. How do I reconcile that in myself? Have you ever had experiences where you're like, wow, the intensity of this person's experience might destabilize me, might change my understanding of who I am so much that I don't know how to be anymore? I've had experience where it's overwhelming. 
but I can't think right now of a, of a moment of an experience where it was so overwhelming that, I, that it either destroyed me in that moment or destroyed the relationship. If I think about situations where I felt overwhelmed, the reason, if I'm very honest, the reason why I felt overwhelmed is because I felt that I needed to do something. Mm, yeah, right. To make it better. Yeah. yeah. But at the moment I, I want to make it better, I am denying the other person's humanity. To make it better for the other person is not empathy, contrary to what most people believe. The other person never asked me to fix them. To make it better is just because I can't sit with the discomfort right now. So I want to fix it straight away. You want to fix it for yourself. Yeah. And yeah. I don't want to fix it for them. If In those moments, I wanted to fix it for me because I wanted to escape the discomfort. The biggest service we can do to, to ourselves, to the other person, and to the relationship with the other person, the moment when we feel overwhelmed, is to look really deep within ourselves and figure out what is so hard for me about this. Mm-hmm. What is this teaching me about myself rather than the other person? Because mm-hmm. the discomfort isn't about the other person most of the time. Mm-hmm. It's about our inability to sit with it. So mm-hmm. if I feel the need to fix it, why am I feeling the need to fix it? And if we're willing to sit with those kind of questions to explore our inner world, inside out perspective, we have an opportunity to gain incredible insight and wisdom that will help us to develop better relationships in the future. Here's an example of simple questions that we can ask ourselves as well as the other person in a situation like this. And it doesn't always have to be super high, intense, like emotional experience, but it can be simply a situation that, that we may have not dealt with before. Right? Mm-hmm. So I had a coaching session and the person, it was the first session we had and the person said her words, I've got Asperger, right? Because I know that Asperger, the person and as well as the, is problematic. You mean as a title, as a label? Yes, yeah. 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 Um, but she said, I have Asperger. Now, that was the first time for me that somebody said that in the first session. So like, hey, here's my situation. And if you're not careful, as a, in this case, in a coaching setting, you might immediately jump into rescue mode or so. Oh my God, so bad for you. Like, how can we fix it? So I asked her, what would you like me to know regarding this? Is that simple? What would you like me to know regarding you having Asperger? Mm-hmm. Yeah, rather than thinking, oh, people with Asperger's, they're usually like this, and yeah. they want this, yeah. and I need to do this yeah. for them. Yeah. And then she simply said, here's what you need to know. And she gave me a list of things that I needed to know. And that way, we can have a much healthier relationship, much more bonding relationship, much more understanding relationship. Mm-hmm. How did she answer that? She gave me a list of things that I need to know, and that helped our coaching conversation because I can make adjustments accordingly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very simple question. If somebody opens up about something, rather than making assumptions, which is a judgmental thing to do, instead of immediately trying to fix it, which is an incredibly judgmental thing to do, simply ask, what do you need? What would you want me to know about this? What are you comfortable with right now in sharing or not? Rather than assuming what the other person needs. They're simple questions. We finish where we started with Kevin, on stage, where his work and his words come alive through poetry. This one goes out to all the wonderful men who have been with us listening in this program. To the men who say, boys don't cry. One, are you kidding me? Newsflash, if you didn't know yet, real men, they cry too. Funny how your masculinity is as fragile as cotton candy in the rain. It only takes a few tears running down your face for it to instantly disappear. Three, you think 
that a man crying is the least sexy a man can be. Well, let me tell you what isn't sexy. What isn't sexy is grown as men, not dealing with their own traumas, projecting it onto their relationships and taking it out on their partners. What isn't sexy is 35% of women globally having experienced physical or sexual violence at the hands of men. What isn't sexy is men who are so afraid of showing any emotions, they'd rather suffer in silence and go at it alone when dealing with depression and other mental health problems. What isn't sexy is the global male to female suicide ratio being three to one, four. I have never met a man who didn't feel better after a good sobbing. But I do know many men who would rather be robbing themselves from emotional well-being by bottling up their emotions and drowning in their own sorrows. So I'd rather borrow a shoulder to cry on than let the water take another victim. I'd rather see tears streaming down boys' faces than face another broken dream of a boy who didn't know where to go with his own feelings other than physical violence. Crime, gun, knives, an overdose, an addiction, a casket. Five, did you know that the average female body is made of a 55% water, but the average male body is made of a 60% water? And I know while male bodies contain more water, it's the uncried tears of all the years we have not swallowed our pride and pretended to be all right instead. Silence is a violence. No amount of muscle, athleticism, stoicism, or hustle can defend itself against. So let's not man up any longer. Instead, let us satisfy our hunger for connection. Let's find shelter and protection in meaningful conversations where emotions overflow, intensity strikes, and feelings explode. Six, real sexy is men who measure strength by their vulnerability. Real sexy is men who aren't afraid of a little water and learn how to swim in the ocean of emotions. Real sexy is men who embrace feminism, who denounce toxic masculinity and tear down the patriarchy. Real sexy is guns that aren't made for fighting, guns that are writing poetry instead of a history of violence, guns that are disarming. Real sexy is men who are emotionally literate. Seven, your fists, may be more powerful than your words, but they're as fragile as your masculinity, which is to say your fists have never put a dent into anything other than your own ego. During a workshop for school kids, aged 12 to 15, I asked them, have you ever been told that you can't do something because of your gender? Most of the girls and one boy stepped forward, broke my heart. When I asked them, have you ever been told that you should not show your emotions all the boys stepped forward. And in that moment, I died a little, thinking about the men they'll grow up to be and the sons they might raise. Because let's face it, we all would have benefited in so many different ways from seeing our fathers cry more often. Here is a tissue. <laughs> Kevin Hohen there, and earlier, Agnieszka Bois, and Amaka Ohia Nowak all visiting with our correspondent, Senjan. The three are diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioners working across cultural borders to help organizations and individuals become better allies to members of marginalized communities. You can hear the full interviews with each of our guests at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. And look for the 2023 episode called How to Become a Better Ally.
peacetalksradio.com is where you can also go to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. See photos of our guests. You can read and share transcripts. Sign up for our podcast, order CDs, and importantly, make a donation to keep this program going into the future. Visit us at peacetalksradio.com. For St. John, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.